Can we turn in our Bibles again to the second epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians? And we're going to read from uh, chapter 2 again. We read from the first verse. We looked at the first half of the chapter last time, but we get the context by reading from the first verse of the chapter. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, and beginning our reading at verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letters from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things, and now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let, until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders." and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Amen. We know the Lord will again bless the reading of his precious word to our hearts. Can we unite at the throne of grace in prayer? Our loving and our gracious God, we come to thee in our Savior's name. We thank thee that we have been singing that none can pluck us from thy hand. We have uh, been contemplating and uh, praising thee for that truth. And even, Lord, as we come now to thy, thy, thy word, and that truth is impressed upon us afresh, O oh God, we pray that thou wast comfort us, as thy word says here, that thou wast encourage us and help us to realize what we have and what we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're saved. So, Lord, we pray for thy hand to be upon us, and that thou wouldst speak through thy word to our hearts just now. 
For it's in Jesus' precious name that we ask these things. Amen. Amen. The Apostle Paul here is concerned, if you look at verse 2, that the Thessalonians had been shaken in their minds. He said that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letters from us, as that the day of the Christ is at hand. And that's what had troubled them. There were those, or some, or someone, had written to them evidently, pretending to be the Apostle Paul, and had given them the impression, at least, that the day of Christ had already come, that the second coming had taken place, and somehow they'd missed out, that somehow they'd been passed over. And so the Apostle Paul has written to them to assure them. He's telling them that the day of Christ will not come until certain events take place. We looked at that last time. If you look at verse 3 there, he says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. We saw the last time that the word falling away is the word from which we get our word, our, our, our word apostasy. And he says that there is this falling away from the truth, that going back from the truth of God. And so he says, these things are going to happen before the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. Now that was going to answer one problem, but you can imagine that it might have been a cause for anxiety on another level, because it would mean that maybe these Christians here, if the coming of the Lord was very near, that they were going to be on the earth in this time when the uh, great apostasy takes place and when the man of sin is revealed. Now he says here that the mystery of iniquity doth already work. But we saw the last time that when he speaks about the falling away here, it says in the text, a falling away, uh, there come a falling away, but in the Greek, it's the falling away. It's the great apostasy. It is the ultimate apostasy that takes place at the end of time. So these people here, they know that this is going to take place before the Lord comes. But what if they're on the earth when the man of sin is revealed and this great turning away from the truth takes place? And so Paul again moves to encourage them. You'll notice in verses 16 and 17 that the latter part of this um, uh, portion of Scripture really ends up in encouragement and in comfort. He says, Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. So he's saying, well, the word of God, the word of God is going to comfort you and establish you in the face of whatever you have to face, whatever uh, great darkness there is, how many difficulties we have in our lives. Here is something to comfort you. And what is that? Well, I wonder what you would have said to comfort the people of God in days of apostasy or in days of turning away. What, what thing would it be 
that you would have uh, written to the Thessalonians to give them encouragement to stand in that day. Well, I want you to see what Paul does. He faces them, and he brings comfort from the doctrine of predestination and election. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to speak about the everlasting uh, comfort that there was to their hearts. And this was what was going to establish them in every good word and work as they contemplated the fact that God, in his mercy, had elected them from all eternity. Now, the doctrine of election, as you well know, is one that is controversial amongst God's people. I've seen people react very vehemently against it, and they have accused God of being a monster, that he chooses some and passes over others. I've known others who love this doctrine, and it has become something that they have rejoiced in. I am sure you have heard the story of C.H. Spurgeon and the man who came with the problem over the text in Malachi 1 and 2, and Romans 9 and 13, where it says, of God that Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. And the man said to Spurgeon, I have a deep problem with that text. And he meant the problem was that the fact that God hated Esau. And uh, he was surprised that Sage Spurgeon said, well, I have a problem with the text too. He says, my problem is that God would have ever loved an old twister and an old liar like Jacob. See, his problem was different. And that might be in a kind of an amusing story, but we realize that there are many people who have difficulty with this doctrine. And you know that in Romans chapter 9, Paul had to write to people who had a difficulty with the doctrine. And he says in verses 13 and 14 of Romans chapter 9, As is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is, there were those that were saying there was unrighteousness with God because um, that he uh, loved one and, as it were, hated the other. And he says, God forbid. He says, there is no unrighteousness with God. And maybe if you struggle with this doctrine, you need to realize that you're not alone. Jonathan Edwards uh, uh, once wrestled with what he called this horrible doctrine. But later he became fully satisfied that it was true, and he became one of the great, or the probably greatest theologian that America has ever produced, and a revival preacher as well. So it may surprise us then that Paul would use this doctrine as a means of encouragement. But I want to remind you today that this is not cold doctrine. This is not just something for the theologians. This is not just those for those that are in Bible college or who are specially studying the Word of God. This was something that was going to make a difference in the lives of these Thessalonians. This was going to give them this comfort and help 
in the face of the prospect of an apostasy and the revelation of the man of sin. And in these dark days, I think that it should be our encouragement as well. And I want us to be encouraged, and I want us uh, in these days when many are turning away from the truth, I want us to see that this can be our consolation and our hope. So let's look at what the Bible says here about the encouragement of God's election. The first thing that I want you to see is the record of election. Look at verse 13 here. He says, But we are bound to give thanks to God, thanks all the way to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. And I want you to see the teaching of the doctrine here. He says that God has from the beginning chosen some to everlasting life. Again, you think of Sage Spurgeon. He was a fervent believer in these doctrines. And he, uh, he was studying the scripture and about the uh, fallen humanity, about the foundations that we stand upon. But one day he said this, He that perishes chooses to perish, but he that is saved is saved because God hath chosen to save him. And that's the truth, men and women. You think of what it says in Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 28 to 30. Turn over to it just for a minute, and let's see what the Word of God has to say. Romans chapter 8, look at verse 28. He says here, Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good. To them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So there it is very plain, whom he did for no, them he also did predestinate. Put your finger in there, turn over to the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians and to chapter 1, and look at verses 3 to 6. We're thinking here about the doctrine of predestination. And we can see that it's been set forth for us here in the Scriptures of Truth. Ephesians 1, look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So there, again, you have it stated plainly, and you could go through the epistles and we could pick out many passages that are the same. But it's not just the epistles in which this doctrine is set out. Because the Lord Jesus Christ himself 
plainly believed in this doctrine. For example, you look in Luke chapter 4, and there the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking, and he set before the people the teaching that there were widows in Israel in the days of Elijah the prophet, uh, but the uh, prophet was not sent to the uh, widows of uh, Israel, but he was sent to the widow of Sidon. And then it goes on and he says, And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisius the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. So what he's highlighting there is that his choice was to go to the widow uh, there of Zarephath and also the lepers uh, to Naaman the Syrian. And they passed over others. And he saved them. And they were Gentiles, and the Jews were up in arms at what he said. But nevertheless, this is what he's saying. God has chosen these ones to save. And in Mark chapter 13 and verse 30, the Lord says, And except, those, they, uh, except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved, but for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened those days. There he speaks about his people as his elect. In verse 22 of the same chapter, Mark 13, he says, For false Christs and false prophets shall rise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. Again, he refers to his people as the elect. And verse 27 of the same passage and then shall be, he send his angels and shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. So again, we could give you more examples. But what I want you to see is that the Lord Jesus was perfectly comfortable with the term for his people, the elect, and also with the, con- the concept of the fact that they were the elect. But perhaps one of the clearest passages that would state the doctrine of election and predestination is found in Acts chapter 13. Turn over to Acts chapter 13 and look at verse 48 of the chapter. The book of Acts chapter 13. Look at verse 48. It says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Those that believed had been ordained to eternal life. And we re- recognize this Uh, how that God uh, has set out how his people will be saved, um, but he has chosen them from all eternity. You, um, and how does he do that? Well, we read in the book of Acts about Lydia, and we read about this woman who was out and should come to a service on the, the, the fringes, uh, on the outskirts of the town of, of, uh, of Ephesus. And we read that the Lord opened her heart. 
The Lord opened her heart. And that's how this is done. It is the Lord that does this. We read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, And you hath he quickened, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and in sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also ye all had your conversation in times past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature of children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. So when we were dead in sins, when we could do nothing, when we were children of the devil and walking in darkness and in death, the Lord in his mercy quickened us. He uh, brought salvation into our hearts. He brought new life into our hearts. And as Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. So we think about the teaching of election. It is plain right through the word of God that salvation is of the Lord and that he in his mercy hath quickened us. But not only do we see the teaching of election, but look at the timing of it. When did he set his love upon us? Well, verse 13 of the chapter that we've read in Second Thessalonians 2 says, Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief in the truth. Now, we might want to ask, when is this? When is from the beginning? The beginning of what? The beginning of what? Well, we read in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So the beginning was an era where time and space did not exist. It was, all of this came into existence, time and space and all that we have surrounded us came into existence at the creation. And of course, some of these things are the secret things that belong to God that are mentioned in Deuteronomy 29 and 29. But here is the thought that from all eternity, God has set his love upon us. Again, we have that confirmed in Ephesians 1 and 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. That's the same thing that we have in the text before us. We have it in the negative. In Revelation chapter 17 and verse 8, it speaks of those whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So there are those who are, have their names written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, and those whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So here it is, God in his love and mercy has set his love upon us from the foundation of the world. When there was nothing, when we were not in existence, God loved us with an everlasting love. And why did he choose us? What was it about us that made him make the choice that he did? Well, we're made absolutely clear in the Bible that's absolutely nothing. There's nothing in us. 
Nothing that makes us different from anyone else. It says in Titus 3, Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy hath he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. And we uh, recognize if you're saved, we have been chosen, we are God's elect, but there's nothing in us that doesn't make us boast. It shouldn't in any way make us feel as if we're better than anybody else, because we're not. It is not. It was all to the glory of God. It's all because God in his uh, mercy seeks to bring glory and honor to himself. But we see something here, the record of election. We can see that it is something that is taught from beginning to end in the word of God. But then I want you to see the result of of election. He's saying here that it will give an encouragement to these people. And we want to wonder how uh, this is going to give encouragement to them. Well, I want you to see that there are a number of results or consequences that he seems to speak about here in the portion of Scripture. And the first result in Second Thessalonians 2 there in the portion is the result of stability. In the light of God's work of choosing these Ephesians, or Thessalonians rather, in calling them and saving them, Paul believed that this would give them stability. He says um, in verse 15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. And the word therefore there means he's drawing a conclusion. He's saying that because God hath chosen you, because you're elect, because God in his mercy from the foundation of the world hath elected you, he says, then you can stand fast. You don't need to be shaken. We remember what has been said about these people at the start, that they were shaken in mind and troubled. They had been shaken by the false doctrine that had come in and those that were now trying to lead them astray. But he said, no, because you're God's elect people, you, you can stand fast. There's no need for you to be troubled by the false doctrine that somehow the Lord has made a mistake and come and left you behind uh, and uh, you're, uh, you've missed out on the second coming. There, there's no mistakes with God. That's what he's saying. There's no mistakes with God. And he says, stand fast. And it's a military term. It's the same term that is used in 1 Corinthians 16 and 13. Watch ye stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. Or he says in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 14. Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth. It's a word that speaks of perseverance. He says you can stand firm. Even though maybe there, uh, even though there's going to be a time of apostasy. And even though the man of sin is going to be revealed, you can stand fast because the love of God is set upon you. You can stand fast because you're the Lord's. You can stand fast because ultimately you're on the victory side. And it doesn't matter about the force of the wind and the hurricanes of fashions and about all that is blowing against you. He says, stand fast because you're the Lord's. He speaks there standing fast in the traditions. 
And when he speaks about the tradition, he's not speaking about human traditions or the traditions of uh, church um, councils, whatever it is, uh, that the Church of Rome believes in. The word there really means the ordinances. He goes on, he speaks about the things that they've been taught. He says there, um, which he had been taught, whether by word or by our epistle. That's the tradition. So the traditions that he's speaking about come out of the word of God. Now, in those days, um, it could have been taught by word because the canon of the scripture hadn't been uh, completed. So the apostles were going about and they were teaching by word and by epistles, uh, by writing to them. But really what, they, what, what he said here is that you stand fast in the traditions of the word of God. Stand fast upon the word. Stand fast upon what God says you says to you. And he says in verse 12, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. You can stand fast. There's no need for you to be shaken in mind. Not only was there stability as a result of this doctrine of predestination, but there then should have been sanctification. He says in verse 13, God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now the the Holy Spirit sanctifies us in two ways. He sanctifies us by, first of all, cleansing us in the precious blood. You've got to be sanctified. You're not going to stand if you're not saved. You're not going to do too well in the winds of adversity if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. So you've got to be sanctified by the Spirit in the sense that you're saved. But then, having been saved, as a result of being saved, you are sanctified by the truth. You're built up in the truth. And you are growing stronger. And that's what Paul is meaning to these people who are shaken in their mind. He says, being saved, being the Lord's, then what needs to happen to me and what should happen to you is that you grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and you become stronger and stronger so that you're able to face the winds of adversity. So that when all of these things come to pass and the... um, Antichrist is revealed in whatever time it is, then you will stand fast because you've been drawn closer and closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there you have the result of election. But then I want you to see the reassurance of election. We've already mentioned some of these things, but here was the apostle. We said it's an unusual thing Maybe wouldn't have been the thing that we would have spoken about if we were trying to encourage people to speak about the doctrine of election. But as I said at the start, the doctrine of election is not something cold. It's not something theoretical. When we do understand it, it does bring tremendous consolation to us that God from all eternity has planned out our eternity. That God from all eternity has set his love upon us. That in God's plans, we can see his sovereignty working out all these things. We can sometimes see in our lives the way that we are brought into contact with people. Or how we were born in a certain area or in a certain family. Or how our grandparents or uh, our workmates, maybe somebody at work began to speak to you 
And it was all in the plan and purpose of God. And so when you can see God's sovereign hand upon things, you don't need to be afraid about what's happening, whether the second coming is tomorrow or whether it is a hundred years' time or a thousand years' time. You don't need to worry because you know it's all in the plan and purpose of God. As we read in Romans chapter 8 and 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And God's absolute sovereignty, wed with his goodness, becomes a medicine to every child of God. As I said, there are no accidents with God. There is nothing that takes place that he doesn't know about and hasn't anticipated. We have an all-good creator, an all-good sustainer, and one who is sovereign. But then there's something else that brings reassurance. Because if we're God's elect, and he says that if we're his elect, and we've been elected from all eternity, and it's nothing to do with anything that we have done, and nothing to do with ourselves to keep us, then we can be assured of our salvation. You see, these people had been shaken in their mind by those who had said the day of Christ had come. And they thought something's gone wrong and um, something has happened and maybe God has made a mistake and they're shaken in their minds and they're troubled. And maybe they're beginning to wonder about whether they were really saved or not. But here Paul says no. He says you've been saved from the beginning. He said we're bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. There are many ways that the devil would come to try and shake our faith. There are many ways that the demons of hell would want to undermine our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we can see that it's not of anything that we have done. Sometimes they tell us, well, maybe your prayer wasn't good enough. Or maybe um, the circumstances in which you came, your, your belief was not deep enough. Or something happened afterwards and you fail. And that, that was a cause of uh, beginning to wonder whether you were saved or not. Dear friend, I want you to realize that your salvation is not depending upon you. If you are in Christ, then you are in Christ for all eternity. Nothing can pluck you out of the Father's hand. Nothing. And Paul listened. In hell, uh, neither death or hell nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have come, as God has said, he says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, and we rest in the Lord. We're not resting in what we have done or what we haven't done or what we have said or what we haven't said. Our dependence is in the Lord Jesus Christ, the mighty God of salvation, who has saved from all eternity. And 
has saved to all eternity. And oh, that we might rejoice in that today. And I hope, dear friend, that you are saved, that you have this eternal salvation, that you can rejoice that God has said, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Now, if we are saved, we'll walk in him. We will be sanctified, as he said. We will seek to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if we're saved, then thank God we are saved for all eternity. May God write his word upon our hearts, and may that be an encouragement to us as we live in dark days. Let's just bow in a word of prayer. Our loving God and our gracious Father in heaven, we thank thee for the truth of predestination and election. We thank thee for the one who has saved us from all eternity. And our Father, we thank thee that that was worked out in time as the Savior came and made the sacrifice by which we could be saved. But Lord, we thank thee that thou hast saved us with an everlasting salvation. Bless us now and console us and comfort us with these truths and write them upon our hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Can we turn to the hymn 505? We'll sing a couple of verses and I'll go to the door and those that wish to leave can leave. But do remember the time of communion. I have such a wonderful Savior who helps me wherever I go that I must be telling his goodness that everybody should know. We'll sing the first two verses of the hymn. Father, we pray that thou wouldst bless us now, those that wait around thy table and those that must go. Be with us, our God, we pray of thee, and bless us as we go to our homes. Take us there in safety, for Jesus' sake. Amen.